Holy crap. A new introduction to the podcast. But for real, though, the rest of it will come after this. I just want to thank you guys. Um, all the five-star ratings that we're getting on all the podcast apps is awesome. And I appreciate it when I hear people telling me that someone else told them about the podcast. So you guys rock. Uh, listen to the commercials or skip by them. It's cool. And your episode's on its way. Today's podcast is brought to you by AssaultLimited.com. Even when you aren't saying anything, you're saying something. Let your gear say the right thing for you. That's where Assault Limited comes in. Assault Limited offers tactical versions of things you use every day. The Assault Pen is a great quality, intimidating looking pen with a pinpoint tip used for self-defense or to break glass. The Assault Spork has so many different tactical uses, we only have time to highlight a few. It's a spoon, a fork, a wrench, a carabiner, and a bottle opener. The possibilities are endless. The Assault Pencils and the Assault Straws... Well, they both look pretty badass, and they both tell political correctness to take a long jump off a short bridge. When you need things and you want them to be the best quality while issuing a statement to anyone else who sees, look at AssaultLimited.com. Also sponsoring today's podcast is Urban Savage, U-R-B-N-S-V-G.com. The best quality apparel available. American-made t-shirts and sweatshirts that fit great with the quality that will outlast the creepy battery bunny. The Date Night Tee, which is the badass's version of the subtle embroidered logo t-shirt that so many of us grew up with. And the hats are 100% American made, not just embroidered here like so many others. Ooh, and those sweatshirts are so damn comfy. The next time you're thinking about scoring a new piece of gear, remember to check out urbnsvg.com. Last but not least, today's podcast is brought to you by A3 Body Protectant. A3 was designed when Martin noticed that Hawaiian surfers who spend their entire lives in the sun had radiant, healthy skin. After plenty of awkward questions about how seriously they take their skin care, he learned the secrets. Hawaii's best kit secret is now available at A3Equip.com. That's A3 eqip.com a3 is a truly natural cream that can be used as a skin lotion a lip balm a hair conditioner honestly anywhere you want to keep moist and healthy get yours today at a3 eqip.com all doctors to the er do these guys have any idea what they are talking about talking about talking about Get squared away. Spiritual. Get squared away. Emotional. Get squared away. Mental. Get squared away. Physical. The podcast that'll help you get squared away. What is up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Squared Away podcast. This week we have an amazing guest. I will let him introduce himself, John Giordano. Tell us about yourself, John. Okay. Um, you want me to start from the beginning? Start uh, from the beginning. All right. Here yeah. we go. All righty. Um, first of all, I'm a recovering addict. I'm coming up on 39 years of recovery. Uh, going back, my father was a heroin dealer. My uncle was a hitman. My grandfather was a Shylock. Those are guys that loan you money. If you don't pay, you'll wind up paying one way or the other. Uh, my rest of my family were nefarious guys here and there. And so, um, I said to myself, I'm never going to grow up to be like that, you know. But when I was 20, my uncle threw my wedding for me. And um, the caterer uh, insulted him in front of the family. But it was an interesting wedding. I was marrying a Jewish girl. Of course, I'm Italian. And, you know, they, they wanted her to marry a Jewish guy. But they met my family, thought they were terrific. Eh, you know, they are terrific. But, you know, don't mess with them. I'll put it that way. All right. Anyway, 
uh, on one side of the, you know, where the, where the bride people are, there were lawyers with suits and pens and doctors. On the other side, there were racketeers with guns and all kinds of stuff. It was like a real movie, right? People used to say to me, hey, John, why didn't you watch The Sopranos? I said, no, thank you. I lived it, you know? So anyway, uh, the caterer insulted my uncle in front of the family. So the next morning, he killed him. And we had to leave town. My new bride and I, because the police were coming to my grandmother's house. She's throwing guns down the chute, you know, into the downstairs, into the furnace or wherever we went. Uh, it was pretty wild. Anyway, you know, that's why I wrote this book, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. Uh, just to give people hope, I only went to the ninth grade uh, as an education. And, um, you know, I was in gangs when I was a kid. I was in a Hispanic gang, I was in a black gang, I was Irish, Italian. I was looking for myself. I never found myself, but at the time it was looking for me anyway. Anyway, um, what got me out of the gangs was I got into karate. And um, the way I got into karate was even more funny. Uh, my other gang member and I were driving by a karate school. He said, you know what? Let me see if I kick the shit out of this karate guy. See how tough he is. I suggest you audience do not do that, by the way, especially in real school. All right? Now, this was 1962, especially back then, because these guys were, my teacher was a Marine DI. So you have to still go from there, okay? So I was like 14 and a half, 15, little punk. You know, think he's a tough guy. So anyway, I went up there. We were going to beat him up, but it was getting late. And I had to get home. My father hit me with a belt. Um, he got home. Uh, matter of fact, uh, let me digress a little bit. When I was eight, my father went to jail for four years. When I was eight and a half, I got molested by the kids in the neighborhood, some boys. And then I got molested by my babysitter. She was 14 and I was uh, nine. So I, I carried that heavy burden with me. Uh, I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't know if I was straight. I was gay. I didn't, which you know, whatever. Okay, but the bottom line is, as time went on, you know, try to prove that I'm a tough guy and have the work girls and all this stuff. And anyway, so I went home. I said, you know, Dad, I really like to join this class, but you had to be 15 at the time. Now these are old military guys that came out of. Uh, you know, career and, you know, Okinawan and all this stuff. This Today they teach, it's like more like sport, but this was the real deal. Okay. We used to do duck walks. We used to have a whole lot of shoes in our hands. And when we were doing the horse dance, that's where you got to squat. We had people on our back. Uh, we used to get down. They used to punch us in the stomach and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that they do in the Marines, I guess. In the wintertime, they they, what they did is they opened all the doors and the windows. If it was snowing out. We had to strip down with no shoes, just our gi pants, and run around in the snow around the whole neighborhood. In the summertime, they closed the doors and the windows and turned on the steam. So that was the kind of training I had. Today, they call it abuse. <laughs> so I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, anyway, uh, I went to the class, and he signed the paper because he had to be 15, and I went into the class. And it wasn't, I thought it was karate, but it was a jujitsu class. So to me, I didn't even care. But I looked at the instructor. It was a short little guy with a round stomach, round face. And I says, this has got to be a joke. All right. So we're sitting around. He teach you how to roll out. I teach you how to fall. And then he said, all right, now we're going to teach you how to block a punch. Do I have a volunteer? Of course, I raised my hand right away. As he's talking to the class, and I'll never forget this, I sneak punched him. 
that's another thing I suggest you don't do. All I know is I went from point A to point B with a foot in my throat and a big round face smiling at me. I went, holy shit. I fell in love with the martial arts. I trained seven days a week. I became a judo champion. I became a national karate champion, black belt all of fame. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. Because all the fighting I did in the street, I now put in the ring. So that's one of the things that actually helped me. But as time went on, I met a girl and she started to do drugs. I started to do drugs with her. And as that really goes, you know, you start doing that stuff. And eventually it changes the way your brain functions. And uh, I got hooked on drugs. So as time went on, eventually I was getting worse and worse. I used to teach the bodyguards for the cartel in Colombia. I used to do collection work for the smugglers. And I was selling kilos of cocaine every month and doing that collection work. And uh, I was heading down a bad road. So anyway, my family did an intervention. I wonder who's doing an intervention on them. They're doing an intervention on me. So I said, okay. So they said, you got to go to treatment, man. You're off the chain. I said, I'm off the chain? Okay. So my mother said she'll never talk to me again. I says, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll take a break and have them leave me alone. So I had a little Coke in my sock. I went into the bathroom, did a couple of hits, and put my sunglasses on, and I went upstairs to the hospital to get admitted. Now, I didn't want anybody to know. That's how stupid I was. I, they don't want anybody to know who I was because I taught a lot of the doctors, and I taught their children. Well, that didn't last too long. The guy came up from the administration office, right? And he was one of my students. So that, that ended that routine. And I remember being in group and they said, well, John, you know, you could share, you know, some of the things that are going on. I said, look, man, I wouldn't even get high with you people. You want me to share? Forget it. Okay. I was the biggest wise ass you ever want to meet. I didn't have a problem. These people had a problem. I was just there to get everybody off my back. So what happened was in about two weeks, three weeks, I went in December 4th as my clean day. I started to clear up. I started to realize I was hurting myself. I was hurting my children. I was hurting my family. You know, as crazy as they were, I still was hurting everybody. So I wanted to, but yet I wasn't totally right. Uh, it, was, it was coming up on Christmas Eve and I wanted to go home for Christmas Eve. I didn't want the kids to see me in the hospital. That was a lie. I wanted to go home because my friends would give me Christmas cards with Coke in it. So that's the real reason I wanted to go to home. Well, they said, no, you can't go. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't get angry. I got rageful and took me sometimes hours, sometimes a couple of days. So I go in my room. I punch the door. I never emptied my suitcase because I was always leaving. I always had my suitcase going to the to the um, elevators. And he said, John, come and talk to us. And I talked to him and they brought me back to the room, you know. So what happened was this counselor told me, you ever pray on your knees? I said, look, give me a break. I'm a recovering Catholic. Praying on my knees. I got calluses on my knees. What are you kidding me? That's all we did was pray. All right. No, how about humility? I said, yeah, okay. God doesn't hear me if I'm in the closet. So he says, well, just think about it. Well, he was in my head. You know, I don't know how you guys know, but you ever get a guy in your head? All of a sudden he's talking. He's not there, but he's talking. Yeah. Well, that's what happened to me. Anyway, I said, okay. 
let me get down on my knee. Let me, I was in so much pain and so much anguish and, and I didn't even know where to direct it anymore. You know, and uh, I tried to get my knee down. This may sound like baloney to you. I couldn't get my knee down. It wouldn't go down. And that freaked me out. And then finally I pushed my knee down. And then I pushed my other knee down. I said, look, whatever's out there, God, Jesus, I don't care. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. Just get me out of this feeling. It disappeared like it never, ever was there. I don't know about anybody else, but that shit never happened to me before. As sick as I was, I tried to get it back. Didn't work. So that was my spiritual awakening in treatment. And then I started to realize what I needed to do with my life. You know, I always went from job to job. I mean, I did plays. I had my own television. You know, I did all kinds of stuff. Later, not in not in recovery. In recovery, I did that. But before, I did plays in the theater, performing arts, kabuki theater, karate shows, and all this other kind of stuff. But I was using. You know, um, matter of fact, while I was using, I also did. I had a. Uh, I was working for this flea market USA. And it was right after the riots in Liberty City in Overtown in Miami. That's where the riots were. And um, the people I worked for, one of the guys was my student. He said, I want to sell you a booth. I said, no, no, I don't want a booth. I want to work for you. He said, oh, sensei, you know, I mean, teacher. He said, look, you know, I, I know you're good at karate, but, you know, I mean, you know, how much do you want? I said, give me a thousand a week. He said, what? And this is 1980, 81. So I said, tell you what. Give me $250 a week. But if I meet all the quotas that you want me to meet, I want that $1,000 a week. He said, yeah, okay. So he thought I couldn't do it. Three months, I got $1,000 a week. And you were selling stuff? Well, I was selling the boots. And and what I did was, I I did some wild stuff. They wanted to have, I also had the security because a lot of my black belts I trained in Liberty City and Overtown and they were former gang members, okay, that got out of the gang like me and did the martial arts. So all the other gangs, all the little shorties, they call them, knew who these, these are the older guys, knew who they were, so they didn't want to mess with them. That's how it works in the neighborhood. So anyway, they had uh, the 22nd Avenue players and all these other gangs that were terrorizing a lot of stores. They, we told them, you don't bother us, we won't bother you. So they left us around. So I did the security with my black belts. And then what I did was I did the marketing. So I says, they said, we want a grand opening like nobody's ever had. I said, okay. So I used to work at the Agora Ballroom. Um, it was, um, it used to be in Akron, Ohio. Then it was in Hallandale. And it was a 1500 seater where all these bands would come in like Joe Cocker and Chickaria, all these different bands would come in. And back then, they used to have the record companies used to have their own little place. And so I was the head of security there. And the guy that owned it, this guy, Larry, Gary Lacante, um, he managed different bands in L.A. and stuff. So I called him up. I said, look, Gary, I need somebody that's going to really make an impact in Liberty City and Overtown. He says, I got just the person. And he's really down on his luck. I said, who's that? He said, James Brown. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so he calls up James Brown. James Brown speaks to me, okay? And, uh, you know, James was a co-cat also. Yeah. So, you know, 
So anyway, so James wanted $20,000. I said, okay. So I, I told the people in the flea market, I said, look, here's what I got to do. We got to make a theme for this. They said, what do you mean? I said, look, we're revitalizing Liberty City. Nobody wanted to go into Liberty City and all the time and shop. They were afraid. Okay, because of the gangs, because of all the stuff that was going on. Okay, so I says, we got to revitalize it. So what I did was I went to the SBA people, okay, Small Business Association, teach people how to run a business, how to buy wholesale, how to do accounting, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Then I went to all the churches and I'm dancing in the churches with all the deacons and all this other stuff. So what happened was, was very interesting. I says, uh, I want to invite President Reagan to the flea market open. So I swear to you, like you're laughing, Paul. Everybody was laughing at me. They go, John, the president's not going to come to a flea market. I said, well, you never know. Two weeks later, I get a letter from the White House. Matter of fact, I, I have the letter in my office. I think I put it in a book too. All right. Saying the, the president was sorry. He couldn't attend, but he's sending a representative. So they sent Carrie Meeks, who at the time was um, uh, the head of the state uh, in Florida. And then she became Senator Meeks. So she went around because they really, you know, they really check you out. They're not just sending anybody without know who the heck to sell me. Anyway, they went around the neighborhood. Everybody knew who I was and this and that. They didn't know I did drugs. They just knew I was helping the kids and teaching them all and what I was doing in the flea market. So she went to the Martha Luther King Foundation and they presented me with the Martha Luther King Award on stage. And I want to tell you what this, I got the videos to show you. 60,000 people showed up. That was oh the estimate God. the television stations gave it. As far as your eye can see, and every direction where you couldn't you couldn't even see the end. I'll put it to you that way. That we had a gigantic parking lot. Right? And that's how I got the Martin Luther King Award. Okay. So I did a lot of good stuff when I was using. I wasn't over that line yet. I was just, you know, weekend back in this, you know. The 60s, 80s, 70s, you know, that kind of thing. Then so I went over That was line. before you cleaned up. Yeah, that was before I okay. cleaned up. Right. So anyway, when I um when I got out of treatment, I got divorced. I tried to make it work. She was still doing coke. I said, look, this ain't working. So I my therapist said, John, don't make any major decisions. I said, Well, I'm gonna make a major decision because she's using, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't keep hanging out there. All right. So I left, I was homeless. She had the car, she had the house, she had everything, I had nothing. And I couldn't go back to selling drugs. I couldn't go back to doing collection work. So all I was doing was teaching karate enough to eat and you know, do something. My friend owned a hotel and it's all in the book. So I don't want to get too much about the book. You guys are gonna, it's it. really a lot of hardships in that book. Matter of fact, I cried when I wrote it. I had to put it down. Um, you know, you, if you go through all your traumas, man, it, it's it's not an easy journey to write about. No, but, but I had a mission because I wanted to help people that they were hopeless and thought, well, I don't have a good education. My family's this. Uh, I have nowhere to go. I have no direction. I got no education. And what am I going to do? One so of the that's why I wrote the book. One of the things um, that comes with that, Is it okay if I read a little passage yeah, that I give, wrote yeah, give me give me one second. I just want to say one thing about um, sure. being able to put that in the book. A lot of people 
don't understand that true strength really comes from being able to show exactly who you are to your core, including all of your trauma and then being okay with it. It, True strength doesn't come from, from hiding everything that, that makes you wrong. No, let me tell you, I was really ashamed. I wouldn't tell anybody that I went to the ninth grade. I wouldn't tell anybody I got molested and part of me liked it. And I couldn't figure it out. I was only eight and a half. So, you know, uh, it was really traumatizing for the rest, for almost uh, most of my life. Yeah. You know, until I got into recovery and I started to go to therapy and I went to meetings and I started to understand what really went on. And before I read this, I'm just going to give you another excerpt. So I wind up, I'm going to give you a short version. I wind up going partners. I raised money. My friend that owned the hotel, I had a room where I had a bicycle that somebody loaned me. I had a jar I used to put quarters in when I had quarters, right? And um, I wanted to do something with my life. And uh, the doctor that treated me was a famous doctor, right? And I told my friend, oh, he wants to open up a treatment center. Well, I lied. He didn't want to. Oh, you don't even know why I was talking to him. And the only thing I knew about treatment centers is that I was in one, okay? So anyway, so if you got him, I'll give you money. How much you need? Now, what do I know how much we need? I said, oh, a quarter of a million dollars. He said, okay, I'll give it to you. All right? I said, okay, because I, I knew the guy for years. I used to work for him on and off. And um, I went to the doctor and I says, hey, I got a quarter of a million dollars. How would you like to open up a treatment center? So, you know, John, I was just thinking about that because he was a comedian. So we opened it up and then I hired my therapist to help save my life. But there was a little problem. And I'll give you the short version. He didn't like the fact that his client was his boss. Yeah. And all I was, was the guy that really appreciated what he did for me. Anyway, long story short, uh, the doctor only had three years clean. Okay. He was a sex addict. Uh, one day we couldn't make payroll. We were packed. And my partner that threw the money in said they were stealing. And I said, I became so I'm a street kid. I became sober and I get stupid. I said, no, he's in recovery. He would never do that. Well, <laughs> so I walked into the office. I says, Hey, did, did you steal money? He said, well, I got, I bought hookers apartments and I bought this and I bought that. And that was in any way they took the treatment center out from under me. They blamed my friend. It's a whole story. I didn't have a lawyer because I'm a street kid. You cheat me, I punch you in the face. So, you know, I mean, that's the way I was. Yeah. Not very bright. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, after that, I wound up getting, um, uh, so I had to stay there for, well, how many years did I stayed? I think three years because I went to school. I went back, I got my GED, and I wanted to be a therapist, and I had to have 300 hours of education and 6,000 hours of supervision. Now, where am I going to get supervision? So they gave me the outpatient, which had three patients in it, all right, hoping that it would go away, which I didn't because I came up with another idea to make a continuum of care and have the inpatient go to outpatient. They made a lot of millions of dollars. I just made a salary with a good salary. Um And anyway, it was three years and I got fed up. I got my 6,000 hours. I passed my test and I walked into his office and I say, I am not going to rearrange your face. Okay. Even a plastic surgeon will not be able to put it back together. And then I'm going to call my uncle. Now he knew who my uncle was because my uncle was stuck on crack and we put him in treatment. And one day he was in group and he's telling all the people how many people he killed. So they're running into my office, John. 
your uncles. I said, what did he do to you? He said, no, he's telling us all the people he killed. I said, oh, I told you what he did. They thought <laughs> I was lying, right? So anyway, um, I told him I'm going to call my uncle. He got scared. I said, I want my contract that you said you were going to give me that you never gave me in three years. I got my contract in an hour. And then I left two months later. They gave me $80,000. And being a good addict, didn't have any money, had a spending addiction, so that disappeared. Yeah. And anyway, my friend had another guy that wanted a treatment center. I did the same mistake, no lawyer. I went with him. I didn't know he was a corporate raider. I put it all together. By that time, I learned everything about this business, everything. Okay? Put it together. After a year, we were successful. And then one day he came in and said, well, you know what? You're fired. I said, what? I was going to throw him through the window. And then I said, no, you can't do that. All right? So I got a lawyer. I got $80,000 again. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That was a magic number, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, uh, then I opened up. I went, no, I was a clinical director for uh, indigent facility, a clinical director that was uh, people that were uh, HIV uh, homeless. And I was the clinical director for there. But that place was run like an old TC, they call Therapeutic Community, where they put the guy in the middle of the room, they beat the hell out of him, and they try to build him back up. And I said, wait a second. I didn't need anybody beat me up. I did a great job on my own. Yeah. You know? So a couple of things happened, then I left. And then I was going out with this woman. She says, why don't you open up an outpatient? I says, uh-uh, I'm not going near this stuff anymore. No, you should do it. I said, look, I got $300 in my bank. Okay? So she says, well, you could do it. I said, yeah, okay. So my friend owned a little 750-square-foot building. And he was one of the black belt friends of mine. He was a chiropractor. And he says, I said, how much you want to rent that for? He says, how much you got? I said, I only have $300. He says, I tell you what, when you make enough money in two or three months, then you can pay me $300 a month. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. We started with that. I was the only employee. I got my other friend went with me. He did the business part. Goes, I used to take the money, put it in my pocket. And he said, let me see your books. I said, I'll give you 50% of the company. He said, 50% of what? <laughs> so I mean, how many books? So he says, well, how do you know they pay you? Oh, they'll pay me. He said, oh, no, 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 no. They're addicts. I'll, I'll take over the business. All right, take over the business. Then we brought his son. So I'm going to fast track it. Over the years, we built it up to seven buildings, 147 employees, and we sold it in 2012 for $45 million. Wow. Now, all I can tell you is this. If you would tell me that, I probably would try to punch you in the mouth to help with recovery, thinking you're making a fool of me. And everybody knows in the community about this. So I think it's the opportune time to read this part for guys that think life is over. It's not over. It's only over when you say it is. And there are no failures, only lessons. And that's what I learned in my life. The kid from the South Bronx who never gave up, here's my roadmap for positive change. There is one thing in this world, one special lesson, one constant that has guided me through the turbulent waters of life. This infinite rule, which most people know but ignore, or who simply do not follow their life lessons. That is, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, the obstacles, the people that get in our way, or things that slow us down, follow this one simple rule. Never give up on your dreams. 
never let go of your passions, and especially never give up on yourself or a God of your understanding. My name is John Giordano, and I'm a recovering addict who turned $300 into $45 million. I was blessed to become extremely successful, and i like to share my story with you. This is how my life was transformed and how I was saved from falling into the abyss of hell. And by following this one rule, learning how to have a life worth living. And then I became a traumatologist, and my father must be turning over to his grave. I, uh, the girl I was with, we went up going to church every uh, every week for a couple of years, and I became a priest. Now, if my father heard that, he would probably shoot me. And then I became a chaplain for the police department. And I do trauma work with our vets. I do trauma work. Police officers have been in shootings, as you know. Uh, people that have been molested, been raped. Uh, you know, things that happened to me. And I'm doing God's work, man. And let me tell you, there's no better high than helping another human being. That's all I can tell you. One thing I want to highlight there, John, um, for everybody that's out here listening, is John wasn't a 20-year-old kid that knew exactly what he wanted to do. How old were you when you finally... You finally had that epiphany. I was that you wanted to be Thirty-seven when I got clean. Thirty-seven when he got clean. He had no idea what he wanted to no. do with his life until thirty-seven, and then restarted no. everything from scratch. I didn't have a clue, man. If they told me to be a therapist, I didn't even know what a therapist was. To be honest with you, treatment center. I said, "What is a treatment center? What is that?" I didn't know. And so, part of the reason that we got you on here, John, is I was really intrigued, and and me and Martin talked about it too. Is is some of the I guess, alternative therapies that you guys were using way before it was even popular. So why don't you start into some of that stuff and, and just... Oh, just... yeah, that's important because there are people out there, okay, that are more interested in the dollar. It's okay to make money doing treatment, but it's not okay to make money off of other people's woes and sorrows and things like that and not really try to help them, okay? So, you know... You know, clinicians only want to be altruistic. So it's okay, but the trouble is you're only going to treat a handful of people. So you got to make money too. Yeah. Okay? So my treatment center that I, I had, we did hyperbaric medicine, which we're going to talk about. Okay? We did Ibogaine treatment in the island of St. Kitts with a Dr. Deborah Bash, who's a neuromolecular scientist from the University of uh, Miami School of Medicine. She was the head of the Brain Bank and Alzheimer's Foundation. I worked with her for 13 years. I started that in 1996. That's a whole other story, which is a real funny story when you read the book. Um, and then I got into different, I said, look, people, I had kids dying in my arms, man. I brought kids back to my, I remember one kid, one girl, there was two girls that were locked in a bathroom. They called me two o'clock in the morning. My house was about five blocks away. I ran over there. I kicked the door in. One girl was in a bathtub, all right, half out. And the other one was dead. So I did CPR and I brought it back. Then by that time, they hit it with knock on. Okay. And she came back. The first word she said to me, you MF, why didn't you let me die? Wow. Three years later, that girl called me and says, thank you for saving my life. I have a family today and I was hopeless and you helped me. That's and awesome. I don't, all I can tell you is this, man. There ain't no better feeling than that. You know? And I'm watching all these people. Now, my son almost died from this disease, too. I watched him put, you know, he followed daddy's footprints selling drugs and, and getting high, and then he OD'd, and then I watched him put charcoal down his throat. 
And you know, when you, and, and I was in recovery then and I'm watching and blaming myself, beating myself up, okay? And looking at my son who I adore, all right? And I thought he was gonna die. Let's cover you know? the let's cover the uh, the correlation between trauma and addiction. Okay, so trauma. Here's the problem with trauma. Okay, the way I look at trauma is not just acute. There's such a thing as subacute. You're in a relationship. The woman cheats on you, or the man cheats on the woman. Okay, that's trauma. You get divorced. You lose a job that you had. That's trauma. You um, get an injury, you wanted to play ball, or you wanted to do something with your life. Now you can't do it because of your energy. That's trauma. There's, you lost your dog that you had for 10 years when you're really down and out and he used to comfort you. That's trauma, okay? So I do a special kind of trauma technique. It's EMDR. I don't know if you guys are familiar with eye movement no, decentralization reprocessing. It's an incredible technique that a Dr. Shapiro founded it okay, years ago, about 25 years ago. I've been doing it for about 23 years. And I'm, I also have a master's in neuro-linguistic program and also a hypnotherapist and uh, holotropic breathing. So I put all those modalities together with EMDR. EMDR is eye movement where you move your hands in front of the eyes in people in certain cadences and you have them focus on their trauma. And what happens is eventually it's like there's a glass in between the trauma and you. So instead of emotionally getting connected to the trauma, you're, you, what happens is you're intellectually looking at it. So you don't have that, that emotion that interferes with your thinking processes. So, but the problem with treatment today, okay, there's a big problem. We only have a 5 to 8% recovery rate. I don't know if you guys know that. Yeah. No. Okay. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. It, this is what I lecture. I lecture to almost 100 companies now. And inevitably, every psychiatrist, every neurologist, and I lecture all over the world, come to me and they go, we never thought about what you're saying. Now I'm going to tell you what I was saying. If you have a low thyroid, gentlemen, you can have depression and anxiety. Go look it up. I tell people, please don't believe a word I tell you. And I mean that. Go look it up for yourself. Most guys, believe it or not, have low testosterone. If you have low test, you're going to have depression and anxiety or too high of a test, okay? You can also have leaky gut syndrome, H. pylori infection, hypoglycemia, especially our vets with closed head injuries where they have depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and behavioral problems. So what do you do for all this stuff? All right, you treat it. Yep. If you're not looking at it, you can't treat it. What did the what does the AMA do? They throw meds at our vets. Okay, that's all they do. And one of my friends in the Senate now, he's a, a, a lobbyist, and he's trying to put a bill through where the black box where they let the vets know what's the downside of taking these vets, uh, taking these uh, pills, and they're giving them a hard time of saying that. They say, oh, then they wouldn't want to take them. Well, shit, don't we have a choice? Yeah. I want to know what I'm putting in my body, okay? So these bureaucrats up there, they, they just piss me off. I don't even want to get into that one. Yeah. But anyway, the bottom line is we're not looking at people holistically, comprehensively, okay? We're not treating the whole body. If you have vitamin deficiency, certain vitamins, 
If you don't have vitamin C, as you know, years ago in the ships, they had scurvy. Oh, it's only vitamin C. Why should that do anything? Well, guess what? That's what happens. Yeah. Okay. So we're not looking at people medically. We're only looking at them psychological. It's supposed to be a medical model. It's not. So now psychedelics came out. Now, here's the problem with psychedelics. I went to a, a conference in um, Colorado. There were 12,000 people there, five Fortune 500 companies. I mean, everybody's looking at psychedelics to make yep. a fortune. Okay? Problem is this. I've been doing psych. I'm one of the pioneers in this crap. I didn't even know I was going to be one. Okay? Because I did this 1996. You know, who the heck, yeah. you know, and I met the guy that Paul Stamos, who does psilocybin research and and um, Rick Doblin, who's the head of MAPS. He's another yeah. guy. I don't know if you guys know who that is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the problem is like with Ibogaine, for instance, Ibogaine is a bush from West Africa. Okay. And a lot of our guys are, are, are dying from opioids because a lot of injuries, back pain, leg, all kinds of stuff going on. And they get stuck on these opioids and they can't get off. Every time they get off, they come back on. And then what happens, they throw meds at them. Oh, take Wellbutrin. Oh, take Zoloft. Take this. Take off. It's changing the brain chemistry and messing them up. And it only works for a little while anyway. They're educated guests. This is not science. It's educated guesses. That's why they keep adjusting the meds back and forth, because if they knew, they wouldn't have to do that, would they? Yeah. No. Okay, so, number one, okay, we need a good medical on them. Now, with the psychedelics, there are people that are doing stupid things, of course. For instance, uh, Ibogaine, like I said, was a bush from West Africa. It was used at a rite of passage from the Weedy tribe. The way it was found for addiction, okay, I don't know if you know much about addiction, about detox, but if you want to detox with a methadone, let's say 80 milligrams of methadone to take you maybe a couple of months or a month, or if uh, if you're trying to get off some kind of opioid, takes you anywhere from seven to nine to 12 days, depending on the severity of your use or how long you use or what you were using, on and on and on. So this guy, Howard Lutzoff, who was a heroin addict, a real heavy heroin addict, went to Gabron and he wanted to get a new high. And he picked up Ibogaine. He woke up the next morning, detoxed, no cravings, and hardly any residual effects, which is unheard of. Yeah. It blocks the opioid receptor sites. Okay, so he went to Panama. He he opened up a clinic. He got Dr. Mash, a whole of her. They opened it up together. They didn't get along. She opened up a clinic in St. Kitts. And that's where I came in with her. And she did it science-wise. We had to put a 24-hour heart monitor on you. We had to do a toxicology test to make sure nothing's on board that's going to interfere because you could die. Yep. Okay, if you had the wrong medicine on board. All right, we did blood. We see how your kidneys are functioning, your liver is functioning, all this kind of stuff. Then I would bring them to the island. We would repeat. We'd do an EKG and stuff like that. Repeat every the toxicology. Because addicts will hold on to drugs because they're afraid of being in pain. So they sneak them in. And I can tell you some funny stories that I did with that one. Um, I, I got to tell you the story. It's funny. 
one of the nurses, I told the nurse, I said, listen, these guys are trying to sneak drugs. And you got a dog? She says, yeah, I have a dog. I said, bring the dog. So she brought the dog. I told them it was a drug dog, but it's so happy. You ever see an island dog? They're like mangy dogs, right? They look like they have dead. They're just moving along. So everybody said, oh, that's bullshit. That's not a drug dog. I said, oh, yeah? Well, if he finds drugs on you and he lets us know, you're going to spend the jail in St. Kitts and you're not going to like it. So I scared them. So the dog went. I thought he was going to pee on this guy's suitcase. The guy said, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I got it. The nurses had to run to the bathroom. They were almost peeing in their pants. They couldn't stop laughing. So that's some of the crazy shit I do. Anyway, uh, what we did was I would uh, do therapy with them. You have to have an intent when you do psychedelics. Yep. You can't just go and do them. You know, it's not something to get high with, especially Ibogaine. Believe me, you don't want to get high with Ibogaine. That's what I've heard. So, yeah. Uh-uh. Unless you want to go to hell and hang out there for a while. Okay. I don't think you want to do that. So anyway, uh, I would give them their intent. I would talk to them. I have them write down what they want to get out of this, you know. Then we would put them in a hospital bed. We put an IV in their arm to see in case there's any kind of an event. We have a heart monitor on them. We give them a test dose. We wait 45 minutes to see if they tolerate. And then we give them a full dose with last, depending if they're a fast metabolizer, slow metabolizer, and how their liver functions, anywhere from 8 to 12-hour journey Ooh. in hell. Okay? The old, yeah. And this is what they call a Schedule 1 drug. You know what a Schedule 1 drug means? That it's a highly addictive. They're morons. Yeah. So, you know, that's another story. So, I began got a bad rap. And I'm going to tell you why. Some of the do-gooders, okay, which I know they have the good intentions, but good intentions don't mean anything. Okay? They're giving people this drug. They're not checking what's on board. They're not seeing their medical condition. And some people may have died, but I don't think it was from the Ivy game. Okay. So that's some of the issues. So now the pushback with psychedelics is happening. So now the next psychedelic is psilocybin. That's another good psychedelic works really great, but same thing. You need an intention. You need therapy with it and you need to do micro dosing along the way after you get a flood dose. And you need somebody sitting with you for six hours or eight hours, depending how you metabolize it, because you're going to be crying, you're going to be laughing, you're going to be going through all these emotional states, okay? Because what you're doing is you're opening up that door where you don't want to go. Yep. And some of you don't even know it's op- it's there. And it opens up and it floods out all the shit that we've been covering up and a lot of stuff we didn't even know we were covering so you need somebody to help you to distinguish what's going on and how to work through all this stuff. And then that's what I would do. When they come out, I would do post, sit with them. They might see a, a color. They might see nothing. I said, well, what was the emotion you were feeling? Let's talk about that and go on and on and on. And let me tell you, we treated hundreds of people. Unbelievable. I mean, Unbelievable. How many people got well and stayed well? Not everybody, okay, but a lot more than would happen under normal circumstances. If you look at regular detox, you go in a detox center, they give you Suboxone, or they give you methadone, they give you some other stuff, right? You're there five days, insurance doesn't want to cover it, whatever, seven days, they send you out, you're still stoned, 
And then they said, well, you should go to treatment. Well, you're half in a bag trying to figure out you want to get high again. Now you should go to treatment. I mean, it's like retarded almost. Yeah. Okay. And especially the way they have the rules and regs. I'll tell you a funny story. When you go into treatment, you have to do a psychosocial. That gives you your history and what kind of drugs you did, where, where you've been before, and all this stuff. And addicts lie. No shit. They lie. They want to get out of there. They don't want to fill all these papers. They say yes to everything. So I told I, I told the psychiatrist, I says, the psychosocial is no good. What do you mean? I says, I'm going to show you. Two weeks later, I said, give him a psychosocial. You thought it was two different people. Yeah. I mean, we're doing stuff that doesn't even make sense because somebody said it's a 70-year-old model based on alcoholism. That's the problem. And it doesn't work. So, Drugs damage the brain much faster and much more than alcohol does. So let's say we have somebody that's interested in, um, you know, they're they're in a dark place and they're interested in alternative treatments or interested in this type of therapy. If I say you, you know, you need to look for a therapist, there's seven thousand different kinds of therapists. Where okay. where are these guys? Simple. Where are these guys going to look, and what do they need to look for? Good question. I'll give you some answers to that. You want to look for somebody who does EMDR but someone who you relate to, you know, that's what you need to do, number okay. one. You can get it on a website, okay? Now, ketamine, I was against ketamine, okay? And the reason why I was against ketamine because it was a club drug, and I said, well, what, I'm going to bring some people in to get high? Yeah. But what happened was I started to look at it and started to see that I, w- I was in Taipei lecturing at a neuroscience conference, and there was four scientists lecturing about ketamine. And man, you know, they have an epidemic in Taipei with ketamine. All right. So I said, oh, I'm not going near this stuff. But over the years, that was about six, seven years ago, I, I saw see ketamine and psychedelics make new connections in the brain. Yeah. But you have to nurture those connections. It's like putting a seed in the ground. You have to make sure the soil is good. You got to make sure you got enough sunlight and enough water, right? Enough nutrients. Yeah. Same thing when you open up that neural pathway. You need therapy. You need to exercise. You need to eat right. You need to do all these different things. All right. And addicts are feel good junkies. If they feel good, they'll do it. Okay. But we always look for quick fixes. There are no quick fixes in life. That's like guy going through boot camp and he's there for one day and he thinks he's going to be like superhero. Okay. Yeah. Well, that ends real quick. But anyway, so ketamine if you do therapy with it, it's called integration therapy, okay, where you you talk to them free, you give them an intent. Uh, the third session, you start to talk to them again. The last session, you talk to them again. We have them write down because when you write down what's going on in your journey, you're accessing a different part of your brain, okay? And then once a month, every three months, six months, a year, you have to get a booster. It's like anything else. you got to support it. All right. Some of these places are making people do ketamine and just leaving. Uh uh-uh. uh. That's it's not a magic bullet. It's a door opener. So Ibogaine Ibogaine is Ibogaine's great for addicts, right? What is it's ketamine? Good for opioids, yep. opioids, alcoholics. Right? What is ketamine? What is ketamine? Ketamine is also it, it also helps with alcoholics, okay, and it helps with some PTSD, and it also helps with uh depression and anxiety. Okay. So there's other things that help with depression. Uh, there's also a thing called Stella, 
Look it up. Stellar ganglia block. Okay. Okay. The stellar ganglia block we also use for PTSD patients. Okay. You do a couple of sessions with that. The ganglia is a nerve that runs both ways. Okay. And what happens when you get a trauma or shock, it, how can you say, it locks up. Okay. So what this does is they, they stick a needle in there. They put it to sleep. When it wakes up, it reboots, just like a, a, a computer. Now, I know it works for long COVID because I had lost my taste and my smell. And they gave me that shot. Two hours later, I had my taste and my smell back. Wow. That was the wildest thing ever. I never even heard of this stuff before. So that's that. And now you got uh, MDMA. Yep. Okay. That's called... Uh, Ecstasy, yeah. right? Same thing. MDMA is starting in January. I think they're going to legalize it. They got what is called CBT codes now. But you have to be careful of who you do it with. There's supposed to be two therapists in the room, okay? Because what happens, it's a heart opener, and you wind up bonding maybe with the wrong person. Yeah. Okay? So you need some oversight. Yeah. All right? And that's there's a lot of science behind it. Look up the science. Don't listen to people. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with that. Yeah, the science so that there's, I've there's seen. There's a lot of choices. Yeah, the science that I've seen behind the MDMA PTSD therapy. Um, I know I've I've talked about this on this podcast before, but uh, there there's a there's a gradient scale of PTSD, a, a number scale of PTSD. And That's right. if you're taking a cocktail of PTSD drugs, they're usually able no, to drop you can't it. Take certain drugs you cannot do. Yep. With MDMA, oh, you can't even do with ketamine either. So I know the stuff that I've seen is, is if you're taking the drugs, they can lower it 10 to 15 points on the PTSD scale, sometimes closer to 20. But the minute you stop taking the drugs, you're back up to where you were. Whereas with the MDMA therapy, they're able to drop it 15 to 30 points on that scale. And your therapy is a, is a session. It's not something that you're taking every day. And so it's not like it just comes back when you're done taking it. And so that's 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 a pretty amazing fact that you're not you're not having to stick something in your body every day that is changing no, how your you body operates. To. Right. Well, you see, here's the deal. Nothing is a quick fix. Everybody looks for a quick fix. Okay. First of all, a lot of people stop working out. And when you work out, you get rid of stress. Stress depletes dopamine and serotonin. And when you work out, you increase dopamine and serotonin. So, and then if you eat the wrong food, you don't take care of your gut, the second brain. Look up the second brain. Okay, that's where autoimmune disease come from. Yep. And all of a sudden, like, uh, like some of my guys, one of the guys worked on the medvac. He's a, a medic, and he was on the front lines, I think, in Volusia or one of those places. And they gave him downers to go to sleep, uppers to stay up. We had to go on a, into theater or on a mission. You know, I don't have to tell you guys. You know what happens. You know, when they come out, they come out addicted. We're addicting our own guys. Yeah. You know, that's another thing that pisses me off. But, you know, what can I say? Tell us you about know, hyperbarics. It's, it's guys like you that are going to make the difference. Tell us about hyperbarics. hyperbaric medicine. Yeah. Paul. yeah. I've that never, really I, I'm not aware of what that is. So help, help us here. It's HBOT. Okay. It's oxygen under pressure. Okay. It also works help with damaged brain cells and that's what happens with a lot of the guys that are over there that's causing PTSD it's not just the trauma watching your buddy's head got blown off next to you 
there's all kinds of other stuff goes on. So it needs to be in combination with somebody that knows how to do treatment. What are guys that are coming back from there? Because, you know, a lot of the guys don't trust anybody. Yeah. You know, I don't have to tell you guys know. I mean, I deal with this for, I don't know how many years anymore. You know, same with the police department. My kids are two police officers. <laughs> That's another thing. My family must be going, they're all dead now, so I don't think they care. But <laughs> if they knew, they would go, holy shit, what happened to him? But, uh, you know, my son is, our son is a uh, police officer in Sunrise. And my son-in-law is a police officer in uh, Jupiter. He was one in Hollywood. And he was getting 20 calls a day running into fire. I mean, I said, what are you doing, man? Get out of there. You know, he goes, you lock these guys up. They're, they're out the next day hunting for you. Yeah. So, you know. Martin, you got any questions? No, man, just <clears throat> listening, trying to relate. Um, yeah, I mean, I came out with years of PTSD, but. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh, am I, is my mic on? Can you hear me? Yeah, it's on. It's just not that loud. Oh. Sorry, yeah, no, I, I'd gone through, uh, yeah, the PST, PTSD, but not any of the uh, treatments you're talking about. So it's it's just all interesting. But um, just had a question, though, on your, so when you uh, spiritually had that uh, enlightenment and became a priest, are you still practicing? That, yeah, well, I'm a chaplain for the police department. Oh, okay. You're still a chaplain and yeah. you're running. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I talk to guys that have been in shootings. I talk to, you know, and a lot of them don't want to say they're depressed because it goes into their jacket and they don't want anybody to know. You know, it's just like anything goes, if something happens, they pull that out and go, oh, he had this problem 10, five years ago, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of rough to break through, you know, but a lot of the police officers, they know me from the martial arts because one of my other black belts is a uh, uh, seven-time Olympic uh, uh, national karate police champion and all the guys. So a lot of the guys know me. He was a uh, a major in uh, in Miami, cleaned up Liberty City a lot, so they know who he was. And a lot of my other guys were on, on the downtown Miami on the horses and all kinds of people. So they know me. So they trust me because they talk to them and they go, no, no, John, you can talk to him. You know, and it's it's confidential as long as you don't write it in a record. Yeah. Because there is no confidentiality. I don't believe it. That's all baloney. Yeah. And they can say it's not. They can say whatever they want. But push comes to shove. If you had to go to court, I promise you, somehow it would have float in there. You yeah. know, I, yeah, I don't play. You as know? long as it doesn't get like written they say down. to speak, hope you don't play. You know, oh, <laughs> I yeah. don't play that game. So, you know, uh, you got to find the right therapist that does, look for a person that does EMDR. I don't know if you ever did that. Yeah, I no, I, I, there's I, quite a few in our area. I'm surprised. Where where are you, Martin? Uh, just outside of Madison, Wisconsin. So, yeah, I did oh, a Google Wisconsin. while you were talking about it, and there's quite a few in our, our area, I guess. Well, good. Make, see if you have somebody that works with the military. Oh, that'd be great. You know, at least they, they'll get to understand some of the things when you're in theater and what you go through and on a mission and, you know, what you're up against. It's not just combat. It's, you know, a lot of other stuff that goes on there. Yeah. You know, all the politics that goes on. <laughs> I don't have to tell you, you know? Yeah. No, that's great. A lot better in the VA, that's for sure. Oh, please. That's another thing. It's my friend, one of my friends, he's the head guy for the VA. 
He, did, he retired in 2019 as the acupuncturist. He was telling me some stories, says, John, they so embedded with the pharmaceutical companies and these politicians. You can't, you know, well, if you got PTSD, you know how hard it is for you with the doctor and how to get appointments and how to do all this other stuff. And oh, yeah. they, 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 they don't want to give you a, because um, I know one of my guys is going through it, um, you know, disability and you have to prove. And the, I mean, they treat our guy. I'm putting my life on the line. Look, I love my country, but I'm putting my life on the line. And then you're doing this to me. Yeah. What the hell is that about? Yeah. They come out vegetables. So I've had a few uh, yeah. buddies that had uh, basically, they've been, they've gotten off. Uh, moved out of the area and uh, yeah, gone through some other treatments now. And uh, a couple moved down to Florida and just uh, got away from the whole situation. Well, you know, I, I went to Marsac. Took me two weeks to get in. My guy took me in. Uh, my yeah. guy, Matt, he's the one that does Robin Sage. You know what Robin Sage yeah. is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for the, the Green Berets. He's the one that designs all that. Oh, okay, right? the Marsac stuff. Too. Yeah, and I met with the psychologist and they liked the technique I wanted to do. And then I found I was on, um, uh, what do you call it? A way you can't, I couldn't practice because I sold the business and I, I wasn't allowed to do anything for a couple of years. So oh, my lawyer yeah. said, You're no, you compete. can't do that. Yeah, not compete. Yeah. Right? Oh. So, you know, that's the story. I, but anything I could do to anybody, you can give them my number. If they're really down, tell them to read the book. I'm not trying to sell a book. I Most of the time, I give the damn book away. All right. Yeah, tell us uh, the name of the book it, again. It's the kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. And where can we find you and where can we find the book? You can find me at John, the initial J, the letter J, Giordano.com. Got it. You'll see the ketamine clinic on there. I'm also working with the Bahama deal. Uh, to put Ibogaine on the island. We got uh, a license to do it now. We're just trying to raise money so we can get it going. Uh, I work with another group in downtown Miami. They're building a 55-story building. And the first 13 floors is alternative medicine from all over the world. I'm on the advisory board. It's called LegacyMedicalHoldings.com. It's the Blue Zone people. So I don't know if you're familiar with Blue Zone. I'm not, no. Okay, Blue Zone is where this group went around the world in different places looking for centurions. Those are people that have 100 years or more that are healthy. They want to know what they did and how did they stay healthy and how did they stay happy. And and then they put all this together. And that's what the Blue Zones is. Got it. That makes sense. Awesome. I uh, I want to I appreciate it, John. Thank you so much for getting on here. I'm going to put all your contact info in the in the podcast uh, notes. Everybody, you'll be able to get all that in there. Um, if you have any questions for John, I'm sure reach out to him uh, or reach out to either me yeah, or make Martin. sure you get people that the women I worked with. I'm no longer there now, but I still send people there. Yeah, they're terrific. They really really care about the patient. Awesome. And that's what you need. Thank you, John. All right, guys. All right. Thanks, Thanks Martin. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.